0: Uh, God's blessings in our lives and the Psalms have really captivated um, they've captured my attention and I've really enjoyed uh, drinking deeply out of uh, two weeks of time in the Psalms and this was a great one. Psalm 34 is uh, a psalm that calls the church to together magnify the Lord to literally together to do what we just did, and that is to praise the Lord corporately so as to grow the glory of God, the vision of God in our hearts together. You know, life is uh, hard, is it not? Uh, No matter what your circumstances are, whether they're sort of on a high or a low, you know if you've been around this sin-cursed world long enough that life's difficult, and so sometimes it could be hard to get from difficult life living to let's corporately together magnify Christ for all he's done. Uh, it's, it's easier to focus on the hard parts of life and the difficulties of life than to focus on magnifying the glory of Christ. But that is the very balance of the Christian life, is it not? We suffer. Sometimes we're persecuted. We're for sure tried and we have trials sometimes we're actually being chastened by the Lord himself to grow us and through it all we magnify Christ we give glory to God Um, Job who went through it all said man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward but even with the troubles of life something inside of us and it is the Holy Spirit's prompting calls us to praise the lord i was uh reading an illustration um from steve lawson he he talks about a life-saving crew that was among some university students off of Lake Michigan, Northwestern University, and these crews were assembled in the 1800s to save people, ships that would go down, and uh, on September the 8th, 1860, there was this uh, passenger steamer called the Lady Elgin, and it went down, and answering the emergency distress call, a young man went out to rescue people who were dying, who were in peril. His name was Edward Spencer. Seeing a woman clinging to some wreckage far out in the water, Spencer threw off his coat and swam out through the heavy waves, successfully rescuing her and pulling her back to shore. And then 16 more times, he risked his life and went out and pulled people in. But exhausted and spent this heroic young man, he collapsed from fatigue. And Spencer never really recovered from the exposure to the cold and and the near tragic um, experience where he nearly died himself he was disabled from that point on in fact and he was a man who though was pursuing ministry after his university time he was going to go into the pastorate he was never able to do that because he spent himself in this way Many years later, R.A. Torrey, the famous pastor from Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, was telling of this incident in Los Angeles, and lo and behold, in the audience was this man, Edward Spencer. So the old man who who raised his hand and said, that was me, he was invited to come up on the platform, and he was old at this time with white hair, and he slowly climbed the steps to the pulpit, and applause rang out, and R.A. Torrey asked him if anything in particular stood out in his memory from that experience and the man said these words he said only this sir of seven of the 17 people i saved not one of them thanked me now two things stood out to me when i read this uh illustration this week and one was that you know we should always be thankful we should always be filled with gratitude but the other thing that stood out to me was um edward spencer's mindset after hearing that story about himself what he said was nobody thanked me you know for the Christian we should have kind of a different mindset there's something that's happened in us in our hard wiring where we don't live to be thanked we live to give thanks right it's easy to sort of get the poor little me's or woe is me syndrome and think about how people aren't thanking us for the good job that we're doing But instead, the Spirit of God leads us and compels us and has changed our hearts to look to Christ and say, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. I was headed to hell and God interrupted that that sure course and path towards destruction and put my feet on solid ground, changed my heart. Now I love Christ and I give him glory. That's why... For instance, Rich and Wanda Klein didn't really want to stand up here today. That was hard for them. We sort of had to beg and implore them to come up because they would rather serve behind the scenes and just give the glory to God. Well, this psalm is all about being called to magnify the glory of God and give thanks. Psalm 34, it's surviving real life in a real world, and it's the reason... The surviving is the reason to magnify the Lord. Psalm 34 is interesting. It begins with a header, um, sort of a prescription at the top of your chapter. You'll see that in your Bibles. That's actually, I believe, inspired scripture, inspired commentary about what was going on in David's heart when he wrote Psalm 34. What prompted him to write Psalm 34 it was an experience, it was an incident, and fourteen other psalms in the Psalter talk about david 's incidents, uh, the the reasons historically that he wrote particular psalms. this one is also a poetically written psalm. If you knew Hebrew and and could follow that, you would see that every letter beginning with every verse is a is an alphabetic letter from the Hebrew alphabet um, and so The verse, the first word of every verse begins with, you know, letter A, letter B, letter C. If you, you know, we're sort of making that Hebrew. Um, And that was done as an acrostic so that children could memorize this psalm and say it back. It's a very important psalm for Israel and, and for the believer as well. This is also quoted in the New Testament. And so I will make those ties together for us but beginning in verse 1 let me just open up the historical context to what was going on this is David's call to worship verses 1 to 3 and David's context for magnifying God look at this of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went away now where is this found this is found in 1st Samuel chapter 21 verse 10 turn in your bibles to 1st Samuel. Let's look at this context, because it really opens up the psalm, 1 Samuel 21. All right, now, specifically, this is talking about verses 10 through 15, but I want to widen the storyline a little bit and have you begin up at verse 1 in 1 Samuel 21. This is David as a young man. He was probably between the ages of 22 and 26 Remember, he had killed Goliath as a teenage boy, a teenage young man, probably 15 years of age. He killed Goliath, and that was while Saul was reigning. And so Saul began to see from that experience how David's fame was growing, how David was known as the one who killed Goliath, how he was the the up-and-coming warrior king who would slay thousands upon thousands. And so Saul became a psychotically jealous king who wanted to kill David. He was, he was psychotic. He was crazy. And so David, as he became a 22-year-old and, and beyond, began to flee the wrath of Saul. He was good friends with Jonathan, and he was fleeing during this time period, 1018 to 1014 B.C. And so this chapter, chapter 21, is one of those episodes where David is fleeing Saul. And, and specifically, who's mentioned here is Abimelech. And I don't want you to get confused because Abimelech is not the name that we see in verse 1. In verse 1, this is Ahimelech okay welcome to Bible school okay this is Ahimelech this is a priest this is somebody that's different than David is mentioning which picks up in verse 10 but we'll get there in a moment let's begin with Ahimelech you have David he goes to Nob it's some it's uh, it's some one mile from uh, Jerusalem It says, David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to me, David, trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And so David at this point lies. He lies. He, He sins in doing this, but he's covering why he's there. He's actually acting as if King Saul had sent him. He says, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And so the priest begins to explain, he doesn't have really anything on hand except what's called the show bread or the consecrated bread. And that was there in the temple for worship and to, to symbolize um, the bread and provision of God. And I believe it foreshadowed the, uh, um, the body of Christ, but, David is able to somehow convince this priest, Ahimelech, to give him that food. Verse 6, so the priest gave him the holy bread, and there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. And so the other thing that David asks for and receives is a swordy He needs a weapon. And so verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, then Have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Again, he's lying. God is giving David grace in this moment. We're not excusing um, falsehood. And actually, we're going to find out that a bunch of priests, um, including Ahimelech, get killed because of David's lies. But the priest said, verse 9, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Now, sort of the irony of the fact that the one hidden weapon in this room is the sword that David himself, years before, he's 22, 23, right? He's a young college-age kid. He was 15 when he used that very sword to chop Goliath's head off with. And that's the sword that the priest gives to him. This is sort of, uh, you know, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings-like, you know, um, literary effect going on. Actually, but this is real and this is true. And so it's interesting because then David at that point takes this very famous sword, the the most famous sword in the land, puts it on and he actually in a crazed state flees to enemy territory where the king of the Philistines is. That's verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, Achish is the one that... David is referring to at the beginning of Psalm 34 when he says Abimelech. That word Abimelech, not Ahimelech, Abimelech is a dynastic name uh, like you would use for Pharaoh or Caesar. It's just a broad name for a king or a lord of an area. And so, so David is referring to that experience and Achish is Abimelech. And Abimelech means my father, the king. It just means a king. And so David's talking about Achish here. And then verse 11. So he's in Gath, which is just, you know, 17, 20 miles away from where he was in Nob. And verse 11, And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David and David his ten thousands. And so the drama is ramping up. David's exposed. He's got Goliath's sword in Philistine country. And David took these words to heart. Verse 12, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and, his, and let his spittle run down his beard. It's this is appetizing imagery as we approach lunch. Verse 12, verse 14, then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack Madmen? That's some funny humor. Do I lack madmen? Do I need this ravenous, you know, beast of a guy here? Do I need this? Why do I need this? Verse 15: That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? In other words, this guy's gross. Get him out of here. And so David feigned madness. He acted like a crazy man, and it worked. It. It was, it was his way of getting himself out of a sticky situation. And it goes on from there. Actually, verse two of this chapter shows that his family came to his aid, Jesse and brothers and others. And and so 400 men at that point rallied around David, and David was blessed even in spite of his sinfulness. Aren't you glad, instead of being a critic of, man, here David's lying and he's faking craziness, and how can God? Aren't you glad that God gives us grace in spite of our sin? Here's a clear picture of that. God's providence, but if you were to read verses 6 through 18, you would find that 85 of the priests were killed because of what, what Ahimelech had done and were struck down, and it kind of goes back to the scene, the scene in Nob where Saul comes to town and, and brings um, judgment on what had happened, and that is judgment because of sin and lying. All right, back to Psalm 34. This is the context where David is recounting the fact that he made it out of a very, very sticky wicket, a very um, life-threatening enemy territory situation, and he knows that he was lying. He knows that he was in the wrong for how he got there and how he got out, but God intervened, and God rescued him nevertheless. So that brings us to verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. Chapter 34 of Psalm, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So we see this is David's call to worship. First we saw the context for him magnifying God. Now we see the commitment to magnify God. This is the kind of commitment that makes you stand out as a believer. When you're a believer and you're blessing God at all times, not just some of the times, but when times get really, really hard, when it's really, really difficult, when there's no way out and you're blessing God nevertheless, that's when you stand out as a Christian. That's where you stand out in your home. That's where you stand out before your spouse. That's where you stand out before your neighbors when they know it's hard and life's tough and you're joy-filled anyway. You're God-focused nevertheless at all times. And the all times really stands out because we know the difficult context that David was speaking in. These were hard times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's just happening spontaneously, ongoingly, continually. It's authentic faith. It's what Paul called Christians to do. Say it with me. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. It's an always rejoicing. Well, it's David's context, his commitment, and then next, David's core. With David's core, the core of his being, he magnified God. Look at this. Verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. My soul, the nephesh, it's, it's the inner man is making a boast in the Lord. It's where you are different on the inside, and that's why you're worshiping God. I know that we corporately worship God and the accountability of, well, we're singing, so I need to join and sing now. There is that kind of accountability that's more externally motivated in terms of our worship. But when it's internally motivated, when you're making your boast in the Lord, when your heart is exalting God or praising God from the inside out, that's authentic, powerful worship. And he's trying to model this for the whole group. The king is calling Israel to worship in this way. My soul, my emotions, my living self is making a boast in the Lord. And the humble are those who will hear this. Those who are not focused on self but are focused on God. That's what it means to be humble. They're hearing this and they're responding with gladness. Only the humble will join in worship. It takes real humility to worship God genuinely. Worship is not fundamentally um, gathering together and doing it out of sort of an entertainment mindset. Worshiping God is attributing worth to God. It's focusing away from self and putting your focus on to the Lord. That's what humble people do. Verse 3, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together i gotta point this out um the word magnify is a very good clear translation of what that word means it's um, a word that means to grow to expand and so when david says magnify the lord he's saying something about magnifying or growing the glory of god what does this mean Do you, for instance, have something to do with God's glory in terms of how large it is? Well, the call here is for all to participate together, to grow something, to magnify something, to enlarge something. So it's enlarge or expand the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. What does this mean? Well, John Piper helped me um, a great deal with an analogy that I'm going to borrow from him, but I have to share it with you. And other people have even taken that analogy and written on it um, from the analogy. So it's it's got to be good. But Psalm 69, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Um, Psalm 40, great is the Lord. Psalm 34, oh magnify the Lord with me. That's what we're looking at. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. What are we talking about doing here? Well, Piper puts it this way. He says, you know, there's two kinds of magnification. There's, there's microscope magnification, where you're taking something that's really small and growing it in your, your mind and, and in your, um, you know, through the looking glass. As you look down upon it, you, you magnify something um, to make it look larger than it really is. That's microscopic Magnification. The other version of magnification is telescopic magnification, and that is where you look at something out in space in the universe that appears really small, but you're using the telescope. And today, the state of art telescopes, you know, state of the art telescopes, really gives a clear picture of something that is. Um, from our perspective it's almost infinitely bigger than we can even imagine where you're looking at you know pinprick in the sky and it's a star but really as it's magnified you begin to tap into how massively huge that sun really is that you're looking at telescopic so which do you want to do When David says, and this is quoting Piper, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. We're not called to be microscopes, but telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all proportion to reality when they know the competitor's product is far superior. There is nothing and nobody superior to God. Amen? Uh, That's why we gather together. That's one of the reasons why we gather corporately as one service, because I want the magnification to be as strong as it possibly can be. We're not making God bigger. We're singing and with with the eyes of faith, we are seeing a God who is great and greatly to be praised. And we're stimulating this magnification as we sing the truth about who he is. And frankly, if we truly believe the lyrics that we've just sung, if we believe what the scripture says to be true about God, then we are inspired to call other people to participate in this magnification process. We are. It's kind of like this. It's like when you see something inspirational on TV and I know some of you probably have the stop action that is afforded to us with TiVo, right? When you see something that's inspiring, whether it's a sporting event or something on the nature channel or or whatever, a world event, sometimes you'll want to stop it and you'll say, hey, come over here. Come here. I, I want you to see this. I want you to join in, right? And watch this happen, right? You ever do that? Or something that's really funny—that's you know making you laugh—and you can't—you want you want other people to join. You got to join in and participate with me on this. This is really worth your time. It's like, oh brother, you know. And they come over and then you hit play and and you enjoy it more because you're doing it corporately together. That's telescopic worship. That's that's enlarging the vision. Of who God really is. Through a corporate participation. That's what the psalmist. That's what David is calling. This people of God. To do. It's it's what we are called to do. It's what we're called to. Participate in. Well let's move on. David's core magnify God David's community magnified God I gotta say this gotta say one other thing I'll share a story um, when I first became a Christian I was really exhilarated about the Lord and you know as I returned to the word of God I, I keep up that exhilaration but it takes returning to the Word of God to keep my heart engaged in the Lord with affection, right? Do you have that same experience when you first became a believer? Everything's fresh and new. Well, during those early months of first becoming a believer, I remember one of the amazing things that happened to me is some of my friends became Christians, and they too were exhilarated for Christ, and we magnified the Lord together in youth group. Well, One of my friends who I grew up with in elementary school, first through sixth grade, we were great friends, Um, he ended up later on in my high school years coming to my church. We had sort of moved away from each other across town, but we re-engaged each other when he came to my church. His parents came and dropped him at youth group, but he wasn't a believer, and I had just become a believer. And I remember I was engaging him and talking to him, and other friends of mine were coming to Christ, and it just seemed like Everybody's going to come to Christ. And I, I'll never forget this conversation I had. I'm on the phone with him, talking to him. And I just said, it just doesn't seem like you're, you're coming along, that you're wanting Christ. You know, I, I thought, I just assumed that you were going to want to participate in following Christ like I'm following Christ. And I remember the awkward silence and the awkward pause. And sort of that was the end of our fellowship. Fellowship. We didn't have any fellowship. We didn't have any basis to be friends anymore. And, you know, we kept up acquaintances, but, but he did not want to join in. And I would encourage you, listen, as believers, take this call seriously. We are called to magnify the Lord together, together, to exalt him. Well, point two, Surviving real life in a real world is the reason to magnify God. David's call to worship is verses 1 through 3. Now, here's David's confessions of deliverance. Now, remember the context of 1 Samuel 21 as we look through these verses. Look at 4 and 5. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Stop there. Again, his life was on the line. He was in enemy territory. The word fears here means to be terrified terrified it's to be beside yourself or at the end of yourself Uh, if you don't think the lord answers prayers when you are at the end of your rope you're missing the point of this verse he was at the end of himself jeremiah 6 25 uses this word um, to depict being terrified with terrors on every side to be in dread and the lord delivered him verse 5 those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed What David's talking about is not only was I delivered emotionally from the terrors in my own heart, I had a joyful countenance. As one person put it, fear, terror, gloom, and shame have no place as they give way to radiance. So the Lord delivered David emotionally. And then we don't just stop with emotion. There are times where we can detect and we actually see where the Lord delivers us practically, practically. Now, this is where David is speaking um, autobiographically about himself. And you see this in verse 6. He says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles, out of all of his distresses. He was saved. I like that word, that saving word there. It's a deliverance. And then verse 7. he wasn't alone. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? You know, sometimes the angel of the Lord is just talking about an angel, a messenger of God. But very often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. And that is a picture of the second member of the Godhead, who is Jesus Christ himself. You know, the scripture Jesus himself in Luke 24 says that the law and the prophets were all about me. And I think that it's important for us to understand that this is a Christological book. This is a book that focuses on Jesus. And this is Jesus. This is the one time in the Psalms where Jesus is explicitly mentioned as the angel of the Lord. There are other places where the angel of the Lord appeared. Joshua 5.13, the Lord appeared to Joshua to strengthen him. As the new commander of the nation of Israel. But the Lord is truly the commander. The one who commands the army of the Lord. In Judges the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. In Genesis 16 the angel of the Lord appeared to Sarah. But I love the story in Judges chapter 13. If you'll indulge me and turn over there. This is one of my favorite little stories. This is where the angel of the Lord appeared to Menorah and his wife. And... This is all related to the coming of Samson, Uh, sort of Israel was falling apart and so judgment was coming through their son and that was going to be Samson who was the man with super strength who was set apart to do that. In Judges chapter 13, um, as the story goes, you, you, you see that that Menorah and the wife are interacting with the angel of the Lord, and they don't really know exactly who they're talking to. I think God, by his grace, is protecting them from fully understanding that they're talking to God himself, and, you know, they, they're sort of coming to and they're they're gaining the information. Okay, Samson is coming. We need to um, have him to be set apart. We can't cut his hair. There's an ongoing conversation. And at some point, um, they understand that they need to offer a worship offering to the Lord. And as they offer this offering to the Lord, actually the angel of the Lord is in the center of the, the smoke offering. and And he sort of is in this setting where they come clear with the fact that they are... In the presence of the living God himself. So verse 21 of Judges 13. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Menorah and to his wife. Then Menorah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. I love Menorah's response. Manoah, I should probably say. Here it is. We shall surely die for we have seen God. In the presence of the Lord well, let me ask you this from Psalm 34 do you believe that this same person this second member of the Trinity is involved in your life when you go through difficult times when you go through times where you are distressed where you are beside yourself with fears and doubts and worries do you know that Jesus Christ is with you that the commander in chief of your life has promised his very presence in your life. In John 1:14, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full and he was full of grace and truth. In Matthew 28:20, 20, Jesus promised his disciples, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Do you have that confidence that Jesus Christ abides with you? You should, because this is the promise that we have. And it's wonderful that we don't have to fear like Manoah did, where he said, listen, uh, we shall surely die because we've seen God, because we understand that Jesus Christ is full of grace and truth. And so as we are entertaining his presence in our lives, we do it with confidence, with intimacy, with assurance that he's with us. Well, thirdly, David, David's challenge to God's people is found in verses 8 through 14. Let's look there. Here's David's challenge. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Again, David has called the crowd to worship. David has given confessions of deliverance, and now David is turning his gaze on the people and is challenging the people to experience and taste the goodness of God. What does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? i got to just kind of correct the idea that this is sort of just a tongue-testing taste of God. To taste God means to plunge all the way into him. It's a full-on commitment. You're not just tasting him to see if he's good. It's a call to actually drink deeply of God. It is. Hebrews 6, 5 Um, speaks of those who have tasted the goodness of God it's speaking of those who have gone full-on for God who could be unbelievers but it is definitely talking about a full-on commitment to the Lord that needs to be proved out Jonathan Edwards when he wrote of tasting God and specifically in terms of the religious affections likened this to honey. He would talk about, look, you can sort of handle honey. You can look at it. You can hear about it. You can read about it. It's kind of like, you know, lemon jello. You can read the instructions all about lemon jello, but until you actually taste the honey, you've not experienced the honey. And that's what we're talking about in terms of tasting God. There's Edwards put it this way. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. He goes on. He says he does not merely rationally believe that God is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. There's not only a rational belief that God is holy and that holiness is a good thing, but there's a sense, listen to this, of the loveliness of God's holiness. There is not only a speculative judging that God is gracious, but a sense of how amiable God is upon that account or a sense of the beauty of his divine attribute. We need to love God in this way, tasting that he... Is good. And understanding that God provides for us. The picture here is that young lions might even at times suffer hunger. And the idea is look, a lion is at the top of the food chain. A young lion in particular was never going to be outrun by its prey. And so we're provided for even more than young lions. Verse 11 Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now he's getting proverbial he's starting to teach He's saying you can learn this sort of love for God you can learn to taste God and his holiness not only his goodness not only his provision but you can experience his holiness verse 12 what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit turn away from evil and do good seek peace and pursue it ask you this why is it that we should want to be holy this is sort of the teaching time of the psalm david's talked about his experiences he's talked about god delivering us but he wants to teach the congregation to love holiness we shouldn't just love holiness because we hate guilt we shouldn't just love holiness because we fear judgment We shouldn't just love holiness because we want to try to fit in religiously. We shouldn't want to love holiness because we're on some sort of performance treadmill where we're trying to earn credits with God. We should love holiness because we love God. We want him. We want fellowship with God. We want his presence, right? And it's not something we earn. It's not something that we merit. It's not something that we try to keep. It's something that God gives to us as a blessing in our lives. So why would you, for instance, want holiness? Look at verse 12. You desire life. You desire many days. You desire seeing the goodness of God. It's like you desire—why do you want honey? You don't want honey for its nutritional value. You want honey, or you want to eat chocolate. You want to eat caramel. You want to eat the good things because you enjoy the experience of eating those things, right? Unless you're you know, some person who has some sort of you know, separation from those things in the name of being healthy, which I, I don't. Um, it's, it's enjoying the good things of life, and that's what David is saying. You can learn the fear of God. You can learn the reverence of God. You can learn the holiness of God and the goodness of God, not in a religious way, but it's because you want to experience the joy of God. So keep your tongue from evil. Watch what you say. Um, you know, watch the lies. Don't do white lies or even, you know, any lying. Don't speak deceitfully. Turn away from evil. Do good. When you turn away from evil, when you come to the crossroads and you know you could cross the line this way or that, and you could say this or you could do that, or you could look at this or that, and you don't do it, and instead you turn towards God and say, God, you're more satisfying, you're more wonderful, you fill my cup, not these evil things. Isn't that a wonderful experience? That's tasting the honey. That's tasting and seeing that God is good. Well, here's the promises. Verse 15 through 22. These are the promises. I'm going to list six of them. First of all, God promises to listen. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, the ears of his and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's stop with verse 15. He listens to us. Now the reason I read verses 15 and 16 together is there are several pictures of God as if he's human. Now we know God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We know Jesus Christ came and is fully God and fully man. So we understand God in that sense. But in the sense in which David is writing of God here. He's using anthropomorphisms. Say that three times without stopping. Anyway, these are human-like characteristics attributed to God who is spirit so that we can relate to him. But we know God is infinite and he is spirit and he's, he transcends this world. And yet, God through the inspiration of scripture wanting to relate to you and I is depicted as having eyes, as having ears, as having a face. He wants us to know him and to understand that as we pray to him, listen, he turns his ear towards us and listens to us and cares for us. He sees our needs, as verse 15 says. Secondly, second promise, God promises justice. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. It's a sobering thought but it is important for us to understand that there are promises that are not just positive to us but also negative towards those who reject God verses 17 and 18 God promises practical empathy when the righteous cry for help the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit listen this brings us back to a, a theme idea look life is hard Look, life has its blessings, but we are on a survival mission. Do you understand that? Some of you, you have disease in your life. You have hardship in your life. You have brokenness in your life. God doesn't promise always to take us out of that, but he promises that he'll be with us through those trials. He's near to us. I love that promised the promised presence of god he's near to the brokenhearted so with our broken hearts we trust god when we are crushed in spirit we are being preserved through that one person put it this way through our persecution there's the mix of divine preservation amen through our suffering we are preserved so god promises to listen he promises justice he promises empathy And then next, he promises pain. Another negative promise, but it's a real one. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he promises complete rescue. Now, I apply this complete rescue in terms of even if life is difficult and you don't have the deliverance from certain things in this life, you will be delivered ultimately into the arms of Jesus You will be made whole throughout eternity. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Look, I can't resist but to have us turn to one more place, and that's John 19. John 19. Because this is a direct reference to when Christ was crucified. Verse 32, it says, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, speaking of one of the thieves on the cross and not the end of the other so both thieves on either side of Jesus were had their legs broken who had been crucified with him but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water he who saw it Has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Look at this here. John the evangelist writes these words. He says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is a prophecy that was fulfilled. And actually, John referencing himself in verse 35 says, Look, I'm an eyewitness to this account. Not one of Jesus Christ's bones were broken. And so the prophecy from Psalm 34 was held true. Jesus is our Messiah. Finally, the last promise, verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems, the Lord literally buys back the life of his servants none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned listen god has promised that life will not be perfect he's promised pain is one of the promises of many afflictions but do you in your afflictions cry out to god i was listening on uh you can do this it's amazing now with youtube and things I was listening to c.s lewis teach because i was thinking about him because i'm about to quote him and, you know, you can actually hear him teaching his voice. And it's just kind of getting to the C.S. Lewis thing um, that way. He died, you know, last month, uh, November the 22nd, marked uh, 50 years since he died. And this is one of, one of the favorite quotes I've ever um, read of his. Um, it's not as profound as it, as it is funny. C.S. Lewis, he says, quote, Down through the ages, whenever men might need courage, they might cry out, Billy Bud, help me! And nothing very significant happens. But for 1900 years, whenever men needed courage, they have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me. When they did this, something has happened. Right? Who do you cry out to in the time of trouble? Let's pray. Father, we cry out to you collectively. We say thank you that you have saved us, that you've rescued us. Lord, we say thank you that we have the ministry of magnification. We want to um, telescope your glory. We want to be instruments to not make you larger than you are, but Lord, that we can be captivated by your word and see a vision of who you are together and shout together to magnify your name amongst this world Lord, we thank you that we have that opportunity to be be worshipers. Even through suffering, even through difficulty, we can be grateful. Worshipers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to stay seated. We are um, going to sing a song. And actually, in a moment, I'm sure.